I feel like I was lucky to get through that introduction, only moderately scathed. But that was incredibly kind and, and moving and somewhat humbling. Um, so thank you, Brian. And I should add that that bar brawl at the Purple Shamrock involved a conflict over um, the affections of a young lady who eventually became my wife and the mother of my children. So if I am somewhat in some limited way responsible for Brian joining the church, he has also been responsible for a small part of my great happiness as well. So thank you, Brian, for those words. Um, and thank you, Jim and Tom and Lumen Christie and all of you, my fellow pseudo-intellectuals. It's wonderful to be among you today. Occasionally, journalists will get introduced as public intellectuals or even God forbid, thought leaders, and it's always a slightly cringe-inducing experience, and I always try and backpedal and explain, no, I, you know, I write a weekly or bi-weekly column for a product that in the old days before that was just read on the internet, people would use to line bird cages a few days after you wrote your column, which is, so it's always important to keep that humbling perspective in mind and re recognize that as a columnist, you're always an amateur, and so it's good to be among fellow amateurs today for a conversation about the state of religion in America, which is a wonderfully open-ended topic, which will enable me to talk mostly about Wiccan rituals in northern Idaho for 45 minutes, and then the remaining time I'll try and sneak in something about Christianity. Um, no, I'm kidding, but I'll try and, um, I'm basically going to try and offer um, a kind of tripartite sketch of where the, the, the real divisions in American religious life and in sort of America's different metaphysical world pictures are. Um, and then I'm gonna try to offer some, again, slightly amateurish speculations about the ways in which the current order could change or shift or transform over the course of the next 25, 50, or 100 years. Um, but before I do that, I thought to sort of personalize things a little bit, I'd tell you all a little bit about my own religious background, because I think it's sometimes helpful in these kind of conversations to get a sense of um, where the person doing the analysis is coming from. Um, and it also, I think, feeds into the perspective that I have on the shape of religion in America today. So I grew up in southern Connecticut, in New Haven, uh, and my parents were Episcopalians when I was a kid. and you know, mildly religious, not particularly zealous, a very sort of Southern Connecticut style of religiosity. Um, but my mother had certain strange health problems. She had allergies and chemical sensitivities and a lot of the kind of issues that now there are entire aisles of whole foods dedicated to dealing with. But back in the early 1980s when I was a kid, you know, if you wanted to find vegetarian products or you know, laundry soap without perfumes or dyes or something, you had to go to some very strange health food store run by an aging hippie who would shuffle out of the back in a Grateful Dead t-shirt and, you know, you'd ask for tofu and he'd go, there'd be this tub of tofu with these huge blocks and it was like the way they used to haul icebergs out of the ponds in Vermont to ship them around the world, he'd have his tongs and bring up a block of tofu, and I still can't eat tofu because of that experience. Um, but so we did a lot of strange, sort of un-Southern Connecticut things when I was a kid. Um, you know, we explored weird diets and different sorts of alternative medicine and so on. Um, but my mother also had a friend who recommended that she come with her to a healing service, a kind of charismatic healing service that was held in a high school auditorium um, in one of the towns around New Haven. 
Uh, and my mother, who was, you know, Ivy League educated and sort of considered herself very intellectually serious and so on, was sort of reluctant to go along with this and went to it and was sort of confirmed in her reluctance by sitting through this, you know, performance where this, you know, woman in loud clothes sang and a band played and there was lots of praise music. And then the woman went around the auditorium and started picking out people as, you know, a sort of the cliched faith healer does and says, someone in this row has a problem with their knees, someone in this row has a problem with their back, come out into the aisle, I'll pray for you. And at a certain point, she identified my mother and my mother very reluctantly went out into the aisle and was prayed over and to her immense shock, um, fell down on the floor and lay there having some kind of mystical experience for about the next hour or so. Um, and so this was sort of a pivot point in my childhood. Um, I was about six years old or seven at that point. And from then on, we sort of entered into the strange world of charismatic Christianity for a period of time, uh, while also sort of continuing to shop around for different, different Episcopal churches. So we were still, we had one foot in the Protestant mainline, and then we would go, you know, we would went to these healing services for several years, and then we sort of went out into the wider world of Pentecostalism and went to strange renewals and revivals all the way to Toronto at one point to hear people roar like lions and bark like dogs. Um, so I had this sort of um, bifurcated childhood, you might say, where during the week I went to nice liberal secular private schools in the greater New Haven area, and on the weekend I went and watched my parents speak in tongues. Um, and then at a certain point, and this is more my mother's story than my own, and hopefully she writes as well, and so hopefully one day she'll tell it herself in full, but we ended up converting as a family, but with my mother as the prime mover to Roman Catholicism. Um, so we, in effect, did a kind of tour of much of American Christianity with, through the sort of world of health food and natural medicine, a lot of New Age stuff thrown in as well. Um, so while we were not, we were never, unlike Marco Rubio, who did a similar tour as a kid, we were never Mormons, you know, there, there were a few things we never were, but if you listed different strands of American Christianity plus some New Age stuff, we covered a lot of the waterfront. Um, and so this was a distinctive childhood experience, although in many ways also a very American one, uh, because we are a nation of church shoppers uh, in many ways and have been for a long time. But so I carried this background with me when I went into political journalism, which is for my sins, my vocation apparently. Uh, and one of the striking things about political journalism is that of course religion and politics are terribly important to understanding elections and the parties and the coalitions in the United States. So there is an awful lot of coverage of religion from the political press, from people in Washington and New York. Um, but it tends to be understood through a kind of binary, basically. You know, you have the religious right and the secular left. Or maybe you have the religious right and a smaller religious left over there. But, or, you know, if you're talking about the divisions within Protestantism or Catholicism, you talk about the Catholic left and the Catholic right and so on. And that kind of analysis is useful. Um, I certainly fall into it myself, especially in some of those debates within our own church that Brian referenced. Uh, but it's also, I think, insufficient to understanding the kind of strange complexity of American religion as it's actually lived by normal people who don't think about politics or sort of high-flown theological problems all the time. And so, you know, when I 
by sort of identifying that complexity, I inevitably imply that even my own analysis is going to be limited, and, and it will be. But I think, at the very least, it's more useful, instead of just thinking about American religion as divided into you know, conservative Christianity or Christianity or traditional religion over here and secularism over here, you know, sort of the liberalism of, of you know, the New York Times and the Supreme Court and so on. Um, it's better to think of it in terms of three, three broad categories, um, three kind of metaphysical world pictures that define American religious life. And the first one is secular. It is the world picture of you know, elite universities for the most part. It's probably the world picture of most of my talented and impressive colleagues at the New York Times. Uh, it's the world picture of the best educated parts of the professional class, scientists, academics, um, and, and so forth. And it's a world picture that essentially combines a deep skepticism about the supernatural and the metaphysical with a continued strong commitment to the moral principles that we think of as connected to liberalism, the liberalism that Patrick Deneen talks about in his book that you can all come and hear him talk about shortly, um, but is ultimately connected to Christianity and to Western civilization's Christian and monotheistic roots. Um, so there's a combination in the secular world picture of a kind of, you know, we hold these truths to be, to be self-evident that all men are created equal, even though we don't really believe in a creator anymore. That's sort of the heart, the heart of the secular picture. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have, sometimes I call it the traditional picture and sometimes I call it the biblical picture. And neither of those are quite perfect because I'm using it to encompass some groups that are much newer uh, and don't really deserve to be called traditional exactly, like you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is only 160 years old and it's not traditionalist in the sense that traditionalist Catholics are traditionalist. And then calling it a biblical world picture doesn't quite work either because then it, you exclude Muslims, you know, people who don't, who, you know, who have a sacred text that isn't, that isn't the Bible. So ne neither term is precisely right, but they're both useful. Um, because they both get at the fact that these are people who see themselves as being obedient to a binding religious authority. A particular tradition, a particular revelation, a particular church in the case of Roman Catholics, a particular scripture in the case of Sola Scriptura Protestants, um, and, you know, and in general, you know, for the most part we're talking about people for whom that tradition is Christianity and the biblical text is the Bible itself. And so the idea is that you, the, the essence is there is a revelation, there is an authority, there is something that you have been handed down and that you're trying to conform yourself to. But then you have the world in the middle, which doesn't fall into either of those binary and seemingly opposed categories. And this is the world that I call, I think, pretty accurately the, the world of spirituality, basically. Um, the world that is the actual sort of religious center of our divided country and culture. Um, and this, again, this is a very diverse world, a diverse group. I mean, it encompasses 
everything from, you know, the Esalen Institute on the Pacific Coast with its consciousness raising sessions and so on to certain kinds of prosperity gospel preaching in Red America to the people who read Eat, Pray, Love in Blue America. It encompasses certain forms of heretical Christianity, certain forms of New Age spirituality, people who aren't Jewish but are really into Kabbalah. Um, you know, it, it, it encompasses a wide range. And depending on where you are, it can blur into the secular world picture or the traditional world picture. So prosperity theology blur, you know, will identify itself as Christian and will sort of overlap and blur into more traditional forms of Christianity, even though its essential message is much more individualistic. It's much, you know, it's the idea that God wants you to be rich and successful and that theological, you know, theological issues are much less important than just praying your way to the big house, the promotion, and so on. Um, but but it, blurs, it blurs into it. And then on the other hand, the, more, the closer you get to sort of the secular core, the more this kind of spirituality tries to justify itself in scientific terms. It will say, I'm going to take the parts of Buddhism that I think the study of consciousness has validated. I'm going to take these forms of meditation, Eastern or Western, that fit with my scientific picture of how the brain works. Right? So this is someone like Sam Harris, who some of you may have heard of, who sort of, he was a noted new atheist. He was one of these guys about 10 years ago, along with Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett, who were writing these polemics against Christianity. Um, but it turned out that Sam Harris wasn't actually an atheist in this sort of hardcore materialist sense, because he got really into meditation and spirituality and started writing books about this, where he was always really careful to say, but look, this is a scientific kind of spirituality. It's not like that crazy Western monotheism that thinks Abraham wants to kill, that God wants Abraham to kill Isaac and all these terrible Old Testament things. Um, so that's an example of sort of where the spiritual center blurs into secularism because it wants to claim scientific authority. Or again, um, Robert Wright, who's a very smart writer on science and religion, has a book out this year called Why Buddhism is True. Um, how li why liberalism failed and why Buddhism is true. It's a great double feature. Uh, but, but, but his argument there too is he's saying, well, we're going to abstract away the theological ideas that are attached to Buddhism and we're going to focus on the meditative practices that you know, have some sort of experimental data behind them and so on. So that's, that's sort of, again, an example of how the spiritual center claims or wants to claim more scientific credibility the closer it gets to you know, the salons of New York and Washington, D.C., and then it wants to claim more biblical authority the closer it gets to the Bible Belt, you know, sort of areas that are religiously conservative. But either way, at the heart of it is someone, a figure like the woman who probably won't be, but let's pretend will be a presidential candidate in 2020, Oprah Winfrey, right? Like Oprah Winfrey is the heart of American spirituality. She brings in, you know, she, she brings in... Um, sort of new thought, positive thinking gurus over here. She brings in lapsed megachurch pastors over there. She's got sort of scientific spirituality and new age spirituality and semi-Christian spirituality. She goes around the country, did a couple years ago, doing what amounted to a kind of revival tour where Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love and other sort of spiritual gurus, Deepak Chopra, of course, and so on, would speak. And I mean, this is, this is the heart. This is the center of American religion right now, and it is what has sort of replaced mainline Protestantism. So if you go back 50, 75, 100 years, the American religious center 
is, are the mainline Protestant churches and all the other religious groups, Mormon, Catholic, Jewish, plus the forebears of this spirituality, transcendentalists and so on, they're all sort of competing to, to sort of define themselves in relation to that mainline Protestant center. The mainline has declined, that their influence in elite life has disappeared and you have this new center which is not that influential in elite life but it's a sort of populist middle American center that has some influence at the elite level um, but really sort of defines a more you know middle class sort of normal American kind of approach to spirituality and it is it, it, its essential quality is its individualism it is the idea that there is a God within who is probably who, who is sort of identical to your authentic self and that the key to spiritual development is to get in touch with your authentic self that is also identical somehow to a kind of possibly pantheistic view of God. I mean, you know, the theology gets, gets murky, but the essence is you, you, know, you, are make, you are devising your own spiritual journey and you are not ultimately submitting to an authority. This is, you know, I like to talk about Eat, Pray, Love, which perhaps some of you have read or you've seen the movie with Julia Roberts or you've just heard of it. It's kind of an Augustine's Confessions for our age except it's if, as if at the end, instead of becoming a Catholic Christian, Augustine had a series of incredibly mystical experiences and then went back and reconciled with his mistress and lived happily ever after without ever conforming himself to a particular religious tradition. And I, I don't mean this as a joke, I'm being perfectly sincere. This is the, the heart of Eat, Pray, Love. She goes to India and has religious experiences in an ashram. But she, and they're, they're complete, like it's a completely sincere religious text. This is the least secular book you will ever read. It's not a document of a sort of world that's lost religion or ceased to be interested in the supernatural or the metaphysical. It's a document of a world and a woman who's fascinated, who wants to connect with God, who wants to have spiritual experiences, who wants the universe to have meaning, but she doesn't want that meaning to be defined by anything larger than her own perspective, her own self. So she, you know, has these experiences. She doesn't rejoin her childhood Christianity. She doesn't become a Hindu. She just remains herself in the church of herself. And that is where I think many, many Americans in our era have ended up. Um, so I think thinking about American culture and, and bringing it back in a certain way to politics and culture wars and the kind of stuff that I write about a lot, this division helps make sense of a lot of conflicts because Basically, one way to think about it is that in any culture war debate, in any sort of moral, political conflict, the defining thing is what, what does the group in the middle decide? Where does the spiritual center move? Um, and just to pick sort of two very pointed issues, right? We have a culture war, or we've had a culture war in this country over abortion and same-sex marriage. And on same-sex marriage, at a certain point, it became clear that there was no possibility that the spiritual center, this sort of very individualistic sort of self-oriented form of faith was going to be persuaded by arguments from the sort of biblical traditional perspective about the nature of marriage and so on because those arguments rested on ideas about authority, natural law, sort of conformity to certain norms and so on and they didn't fit at all with where the religious center was. So the religious, so, I mean the spiritual center. So the spiritual center ended up joining with um, sort of the secular part of America in being completely supportive of gay rights, same-sex marriage, and so on. And that was why that debate and battle ended the way it did. Um, but on the other hand, a debate like abortion, is it, it puts individualism in tension with itself. 
because after all the unborn child is itself an individual and has itself kind of individualistic claims and so on. And so the big spiritual center in America ends up permanently divided and uncertain about that question, simultaneously recoiling from abortion but wanting it to, you know, to be available as a last-ditch thing and seeing all the hard cases and so on. And that explains, I think, in part why, um, why the abortion debate remains this sort of perpetual point of tension, uh, whereas the same-sex marriage debate did not. And then you can sort of proceed to some of the religious liberty debates that we've been having in our politics and culture lately, where, again, a huge, a, a huge, the huge political question is, what does this sort of spiritual center think? And they can be tugged this way or that, depending on which side seems like the victim, which side seems like the victimizer, and so on. And so if if sort of the secular world picture goes too far, if it seems to be sort of trampling on, you know, Catholic hospitals or Catholic schools and so on, that spiritual center still, you know, it's drifted from Catholicism if it was Catholic at some point, but it still likes Catholicism, it likes religion, it has favorable feelings towards people who believe in God because it believes in God somewhat itself. So it's going to recoil a little bit from a too aggressive, anti-clerical style of secularism. Um, and swing back towards the kind of the kind of traditional biblical side of the argument. But then, on the other hand, if the traditional biblical side is defined by you know mistreating gay people or you know being seen as sort of cruel and oppressive and so on, and all all of these aspects of traditional religion that again this sort of the spiritual American sees as oppressive and authoritarian and something that it has escaped then they're more likely to swing towards the secular side of the argument and embrace a certain amount of anti-clericalism and so on. Um, so a lot depends in American politics and culture, not so much on where sort of the weekly mass-going Catholic or intense evangelical or devout Mormon ends up, and not so much also on where particularly the anti-religious, secular, skeptical, um, you know, writing angry comments under my religious columns on the New York Times website person, not that I've read any of them, ends up, but the question is about the person in the middle, the person who has strong attachments to religion, but weak sort of doctrinal commitments, um, is skeptical of religious authority in all its forms and so on. And a big story, a big, you know, the big trend of the last 10 or 15 years um, in sort of American religious identification is that the sort of traditional biblical core is sort of holding its own, but more and more people, the, the, the center is sort of moved. More spiritual people are identifying as secular, and certain people who would have at least partially affiliated with traditional religious institutions and denominations and churches have drifted more fully into the sort of this large spiritual middle. So you have this sort of resilience in traditional religious institutions, organizations, bodies, and so on, but it's a resilience of kind of 20% of the country. Uh, and then the question is, you know, how, how post-Christian does the spiritual center get? And how secular does it sort of more secular fringe get? And that will determine, I think, what happens with a lot of debates about the place and role of religion in American life, the fate of conservative religious institutions, and all manner of other things. So that's sort of a, a sketch of sort of this, this picture and what it means for culture and politics. And then I just want to throw out a few 
speculative scenarios for possible ways that this could change, uh, because it seems it's a fairly unstable dynamic in certain ways. And each world picture has specific and particular weaknesses, right? The, I mean, the weakness of the traditional biblical perspective is just that there's this deep tension between the nature of modern life and the demands of New Testament, Old Testament, Quranic religion. Uh, and that tension has been here for a long time. It's sharpened since the sexual revolution around all issues related to sex. It's sharp around issues related to money and wealth and prosperity, I think, as well. It's sharp around a lot of issues. And there isn't some sort of magical solution that any particular church or community has come up with, I think, to sort of, to, to sort of become an incredibly successful evangelizing force. So that's the, the challenge for, for, for that world picture. But then the spiritual world picture, it's because it's so individualistic and anti-institutionalist, it doesn't build the kind of permanent, lasting institutions that religious traditions use to sustain itself, and it doesn't provide the kind of communal and familial support that American religion at its Tocquevillian best has often done. So it leaves people alone and isolated in certain ways. And if their marriages break up or they don't have kids as more, and Amer more Americans don't or they lose their jobs and so on, it leads, you know, it's, it's an insufficient, it's, it's so personalized as to be insufficiently communal. Uh, and you can imagine ways in which people in that spiritual center could therefore drift back to the communal solidarity that the more traditional forms of faith provide. And then finally, the weakness of the secular picture is that it just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's an intellectual weakness that's, and you know, it's hard to tell how sociologically important intellectual weaknesses are, but the secular picture is basically trying to squeeze the stone of materialism as hard as it can in order to get a single drop of liberalism and human rights out. Uh, you know, to sort of take a world picture that says the universe is a meaningless collision of atoms and somehow use that to generate the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and all of the sort of moralism, the intense moralism that secular liberal, liberalism has. And, you know, it, it, sort of, it sort of works, or at least it does at the moment sociologically, but intellectually it's a bit of a mess. And this is why you can see the pull of these forms of spirituality, especially, that claim a kind of scientific authority. So you can imagine a world in which the secular group becomes less secular, effectively, and sort of latches on to some kind of pantheistic conception of the universe, for instance. Um, there was a book by a philosopher named Thomas Nagel that came out a couple years ago uh, that was called Mind and Cosmos that was extremely controversial because it attacked sort of neo-Darwinian materialism, basically, just the, you know, the view that evolution explains consciousness, morality is an illusion, you know, the universe is an accident. So it attacked it in stark, you know, I think fairly convincing philosophical terms. And Nagel, like a lot of people making this attack from sort of inside the secular world, seemed to be going in a pantheistic direction. He wanted to say, look, consciousness is a property of the universe. And this is why morality is real and it's not just sort of something we make up and so on, that there's some sort of ground of being that isn't the creator God of Judaism and Christianity, but is a sort of thing that you can engage with spiritually and engage with morally and, and perhaps build a more compelling world picture around. And I, I think I see a lot, like I, I think there's certain ways in which, you know, secular readers are constantly auditioning potential 
religious metaphysics. You know, they'll read that book, they'll read about Buddhism, you know, they'll read these different sort of pantheistic and spiritual tracts and so on. They'll be tempted towards sort of more speculative, um, you know, new age beliefs and sort of pseudoscience that blurs into s spirituality and so on. So you can, you could imagine a world where at a certain point that sort of secular world picture um, sort of gives way to some kind of new elite religious consensus that, you know, that where sort of the, it's hard to see exactly how it would happen, but where sort of the ferment of meditation over here and yoga over there and, you know, all of these practices that secular people use to sort of fill in the spiritual space where that, you know, with the right sort of intellectual movement or something, you get something like the spiritualism craze of late, you know, late Victorian Europe, where you have this, you know, this period where Darwin comes in and seems to shatter traditional Christianity, and what happens? The elite of Europe get really interested in, you know, Swedenborgian spirituality, you know, these sort of things that now seem eccentric and crazy to a lot of people with apologies to any Swedenborgians in the room, but which were for a while, you know, this sort of, this sort of elite fascination and craze. I don't think it's impossible to imagine something like that happening and therefore so I don't think it's therefore impossible to imagine this kind of partial merger of kind of the Oprah spiritual center and the secular elite where the center gets a little more intellectually rigorous and the elite get a little more spiritual and you have some real somewhat post-Christian new American religion and then in that scenario the sort of biblical traditional world picture becomes even more culturally isolated than it is today. Um, but you can also imagine alternative scenarios. You can imagine a scenario, and a lot of, I think a lot of debates within um, institutional Christianity over sort of how to evangelize and how to reach out to people and so on, take this scenario as their goal. They say, look, you have this center, you have all these people who are still interested in religion, who are still interested in Christianity and spirituality and all these things, you know, they're reading the Da Vinci Code not because they don't care about Jesus, but because they're, they still, you know, they want to know about Jesus and they're really excited to learn that he had a wife and a house in the suburbs and so on, just like them. Um, so you have that desire and the question is, well, how does the church meet it, right? And, and maybe there's a way to reach out and evangelize these people. And many of the debates within our own Catholic Church, many of the debates that have roiled the church in the Francis era that I have occasionally participated in, um, are, are about that question, that you, know, you have these people who have this loose connection to your church and to Christianity, how do you bring them back? You know, it, it, you know is, is, sort of, is the way of mercy or the way of rigor the best way to do it? Um, and either way, you can imagine at some point that working. Somebody finds an evangelization strategy that works, you have some equivalent of the past great awakenings that we've had in American life, and suddenly the spiritual center gets more Christian. If Catholicism is, finds that strategy, it becomes more Catholic. And then it's the secular world picture that becomes more isolated in a country that's suddenly more traditionally Christian once again. And then finally, you could imagine, uh, you know, and I guess this is sort of the theory behind, you know, writing pro-religion columns in the pages of the New York Times, um, you could imagine a kind of leapfrog where the, uh, the elite, which, you know, is in the market for a new religion, decides that actually the old religion wasn't so bad after all. And, you, and so the sort of traditional biblical world picture sort of doesn't immediately persuade the individualistic Joel Osteen and Oprah center, but it suddenly starts to persuade elites again 
for the first time in a long time. And you have sort of, instead of this sort of token, you know, religious presence in great universities and elite newspapers and so on, you have a vibrant and meaningful religious presence and you have a kind of intellectual conversion and revolution at the elite level. That seems to me to be the most unlikely of the scenarios that I've sketched, um, but I don't think it's completely impossible because I think that, you know, for all the real weaknesses of the biblical traditional position, the intellectual weaknesses and the kind of moral and spiritual weaknesses of secularism are also stark. And uh, I guess this is sort of where I would leave you in this conversation and try and sort of link the beginning to the end, my own weird family experiences to the state of America. The truth is that, you know, secularism can look very, very strong. It can look strong when you're sort of outside secular institutions and it could look strong, I can promise you, when you're deep, deep inside them. Um, but, you know, I came from a background that was, my parents were religious when I was a kid before all this weird stuff started happening, but, you know, there was a very natural trajectory where, you know, we would have secularized along with most other, you know, sort of lukewarm Protestant baby boomers and their kids and where I would be a sort of one of these religious nuns who have no religious affiliation and so on. And instead, you know, the inevitable realities of human life intervened. Illness intervened, suffering intervened, the search for meaning intervened. And finally, perhaps, um, God intervened in the way that in people's lives uh, he still seems to do. Even in our disenchanted age, religious experience and spiritual experience is a defining feature of human existence from which there is clearly no permanent escape. And as long as that's the case, secularism is weaker than it looks. So I'll end there. Thank you all so very much for listening.